If you could be in the room with one person, who would it be? I got so many funny comments from the first service. I got like Paul McCartney. I got you. I got the Apostle Paul, things like that. If you could, I want you to think about this. If you could be in the room for a moment with one person, extended period of time, who would it be? And after you think of that person, who it is that you would be in the room with, what would you ask them? Assuming that if there's somebody in the world that you could be in a room with, that there are also some questions you would want to ask them, things that you would want to know from them, their experience, their expertise, their wisdom. If you could be in the room with one person, who would it be and what would you ask them? I have a bunch of those, by the way. My most recent was a pastor by the name of Brian Loritz. Uh, Brian Loritz is a pastor who... uh, is quite a bit older than me, maybe not quite a bit, but wise, great teacher. I often benefit from his teaching. I teach here on Sundays, but I also need preaching and teaching. He's one of the pastors that I listen to. Uh, And he was well-known in evangelical circles for planting a multiracial church in Memphis, Tennessee, which apparently is a very difficult thing to do in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, That church flourished, and he pastored it for years. He then moved to the Silicon Valley uh, in Mountain View, planted another multiracial church, which is now thriving and is where he is today. Uh, I love his teaching. I love his ministry. I love the things that he talks about, the things that make him uh, 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 speak and teach and get excited, and I've learned from him. And he would be one of those people that I would love to be in a room with. Well, I got that opportunity a couple months ago in April uh, when I was a part of a small cohort of pastors that went to his house to talk about the body of Christ and all of its diversity, the kingdom of God, what that looks like, obstacles to that. And for, uh, for three days, I got to be in the room with Brian Loritz, Pastor Loritz. Uh, Not only in the room with him, but I was in his backyard uh, eating barbecue. I was in his car going from place to place riding a shotgun. Uh, I ate Chinese food with him. I ate barbecue. I ate Mexican food. And I was there for three days with this guy. And I wasn't in his car just silent uh, looking out the window and pondering the, the lilies of the field. No, I was asking him questions. Because I was finally in a room with someone I admire, someone I look up to, someone I have learned from and would like to continue to learn from. So I was all questions. He was probably getting really tired of me by the end of those those three days. Question after question after question. What do you think about this? And what about that? And have you ever encountered this? And that, that, that. I was like that little kid in the room with, you know, Pastor Loritz. Uh, Because there's a lot I can learn from him. Now, most of us are in the room with Jesus, and we ask him nothing. Why? Most of us are in the room with Jesus. He promises he's in the room, manifest by his Holy Spirit right now. He'll go with you in your car, in your house, in your living room, while you're doing laundry and you're working, while you're playing, uh, while you're uh, doing recreation as you're at that job, as you're in the midst of a, of a conflict at work or at home, God is present with us in Christ by the Spirit. How many of us go days, weeks, months, never asking him anything? And why? If we could get a guy like that in the room, why would we not ask him questions? Uh, one, of the basic things of the, one of the basic tenets of the Christian life is that we are learners of Christ, 
Christian, after all, simply means little Christ. We're like little Christs following around the main, primary Christ, learning from him. And this is what Paul starts this letter speaking about when he says, I have struggled for you, I pray for you. Pray for what? Well, in verse 2, he says that you would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. That's a long-winded way of saying, I'm praying that you would know everything about God that there is. But look at his qualifying statement. The knowledge of God's mystery is Christ. You hear that? The knowledge of God's mystery is Christ. It doesn't come with Christ. Christ doesn't talk about it. It is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. (laughs) That is unbelievable. Jesus isn't just a smart guy. He's the smartest guy in the room. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this is the most significant thing some of us in this room can hear right now because some of you have trained yourself over the years to think of Christ merely as your savior but not as a teacher. You're used to, as a good evangelical, coming to Christ when you've sinned and perhaps, even though that's a good thing, perhaps that is the fullness of how you know Jesus at all. He's like the genie in the bottle that you can come to when you need that therapeutic boost to your self-esteem. When I feel bad, when I'm guilty, he will absolve my guilt. But then I leave him and I go back to my life as I used to know it. For some of us, perhaps Jesus is only that. He's just the forgiver. He's just there to take away our sins, to take away our guilt. He's there for forgiveness, but not necessarily for guidance. Why wouldn't he be? Perhaps the reason that we trust in Christ for forgiveness easily, sometimes, but are less prone to learn from him is because maybe we don't trust that he's knowledgeable about all of life. Or maybe we don't know if he's knowledgeable about our lives. Perhaps we see him as this God sitting somewhere in the clouds who is not really paying attention to the minutia of what we're going through, our grief, our pain, our loss, our difficult situation at work, the encounters we're having with family members, uh, so on and so forth. Perhaps we uh, don't think that Christ, who's an important person, would really be knowledgeable or even care about the details of our own life, and yet the, the fullness of the Bible testifies to a different reality. Psalm 139 tells us that he knows you so well, he has already numbered the hairs on your head. Psalm 139, this is David speaking, would go on to say that he is intimately acquainted with your ways. Uh, he, He is intimately acquainted with your ways, so much so that David would end that chapter actually turning that into a prayer. Examine my heart, God. Show me what's in there. God knows your heart better than you know yourself, and Christ is the fullness of God in the flesh. He knows plenty about you. He made you. In fact, we just saw in Colossians that we were made through Christ. We were made for Christ. And in Christ, all things are held together. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ. In whom all things were made, for him, through him, and in him all things hold together. The first disciples who were called to Christ 
had some glimpse of this, that he was the most important person in the room and the smartest person in the room. Uh, they didn't know anything at the, initially about forgiveness and all of that stuff, which would come later. They were simply attracted to this guy. They heard his teachings, and in the Gospels we get reports like this, that his teachings were not like the scribes or the religious prof uh, pr uh, professors of that day, but he taught with authority. He taught with power. There was something about the things that he said. Uh, he would ask questions, simple questions, uh, like to the woman at the well in John 4 that would unravel the entire course of her life, just questions. He had the ability to ask a, a question that would uh, turn your life upside down. He could teach with such power and authority that the religious professionals who were paid to teach uh, did not have. But it wasn't just his words. He also had power. He could cast out demons. He could release the, uh, the sick from their bondage. He could set people free. This guy was unlike any other guy that those people had ever seen. And little by little, John and Andrew and Paul, uh, John uh, and Matthew would see him and they would be attracted to his teaching, to his life and to his power. Maybe they couldn't even explain it, but they were like, I wanna be in a room with him. And you could bet that they had some questions. Uh, that's why in the New Testament, we almost never, that I'm aware of, see Christians labeled as converts. The only you, the word we see in the New Testament to describe a Christian is a disciple. Because a, con, a, con, a conversion is the beginning of that journey. We see disciples. And a disciple and a rabbi relationship, Jesus was a, a, an ancient rabbi, his disciples and him had a particular relationship. One of them was that he, they wanted to learn from him. They saw in his life a spectacular life, something that transcended what they were used to, and they were alert to that. They wanted it for themselves. And so to put it in the words of my friend Jeremy Treat, uh, the pastor of Reality LA, a disciple in that day uh, was marked by three things. They wanted to be with their rabbi, spend time with them. They wanted to learn from their rabbi, and they wanted to become just like their rabbi. Those three things. That's discipleship. So Christianity is nothing less than that. We want to be with Jesus, spending time with him. We want to learn from him, and we want to become like him. And in that day, rabbis usually were the ones to, uh, to be uh, pursued by astute pupils who would come to a rabbi they would respect and to ask them, can we follow you? But even in the Gospels, this rabbi turns that paradigm on its head. He comes to these rudimentary Galilean uneducated fishermen and he says, I want you to follow me. Come and follow me, leave everything behind, and I'll teach you how to be fishers of men. And their response to that, you understand, was to immediately follow Jesus and to leave everything. Now, they left their nets, they were fishermen, but those those. Fisher, uh, those fishermen nets symbolized everything in their lives. That was their career. That was their safe path. That was their form of security. That was also their parents in a, in a shame-based culture in which parents uh, and the tradition of parenthood was deeply interwoven into your identity. They basically said to their dad, I'm, I'm leaving to do something else. That would have been scandalous. The disciples, in other words, saw something so profound in Jesus Christ, they were willing to give up everything on the spot in order to follow him, to learn from him. So what would that look like for us? Well, it would look at least like us learning from Jesus, saying, the smartest guy in the room is with me, 
And he knows not just a little bit. He doesn't just know some theological things. He doesn't know, know just some ministry church things. He knows everything. He knows everything as it pertains to my life. He knows my struggles. He knows about science. He knows about philosophy. He knows about the way life works. He knows the depths of the human situation, existence, and reality. And he's in the room with me. I'm going to ask him questions. I'm going to interact with him. And so for us, while the disciples were there with flesh and blood Jesus, we as disciples learn from Christ by reading what those disciples put down in writing in the scriptures. If some of you are in this room and you're like, I want to start this journey of learning from Christ right now, one of the best things you could do today is to start reading one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Those are ancient biographies, one of the only ones that we have about Jesus' life and his death and resurrection, the things that he said, the things that he did, the things that he loved and hated. You can get it all right there. You can see what he's like, what he does, what he desires, what fuels him. You can see him interacting with his enemies. You can see him in conflict. You can see his prayer life. You can see his teachings. You can get all of that stuff right there in the Gospels. And yet, not just with the Gospels, but Jesus would commission other apostles to write about him. So you get Paul and James and uh, John who would write these letters to churches. And of course, those are about Christ's life. We're in Colossians reading about Christ. You might say, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament, even though you don't see the word Jesus popping up all, all over the place, it is basically a giant story, a narrative about God's kingdom. And it is lurching forward in every single verse and paragraph, lurching forward to the day that God would come to earth and establish his kingdom in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And so the whole Bible is really about Jesus. The Old Testament is lurching forward to when Jesus would come. The New Testament is looking back to when Christ came. The whole story is about Christ. So we can read the Bible. If you want to learn about Christ, read the Bible not to get some moralistic viewpoints or to checkmark your Bible reading for the day or to fill your head with trivia, Bible trivia. Read it with that intent. That might change everything for you. I want to encounter Jesus. Start in Mark. Start in John. Start in the Gospel of Luke and just start to interact with this real person who's in the room with you. Discipleship entails learning from Jesus. This is the first thing Paul alludes to. Why would you not learn, have full assurance and understanding and knowledge of the very one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Now, why is this so important in Paul's mind? Well, then he moves into verse 4. He says, I, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Skip a couple of verses to continue that argument. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Okay, so Paul is setting the pace here. He's saying, you as Christians, we are to learn from Christ because there are so many other counterfeits available to a life well lived. Get the real thing, because you're going to encounter a lot of counterfeits to that. Now, I want to talk really briefly about what he's not talking about before we get to what he's talking about. Uh, first of all, he brings up philosophy, right? But he's not saying all of philosophy is bad. Uh, philosophy is simply the study 
of the fundamental nature of reality or knowledge. It's going deep on stuff like that. That's actually really good. So rest at ease, all of you uh, majors in philosophy at UCSB. Your major is not uh, anathema, 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 anathema. Philosophy is not bad. You can do it. Uh, what Paul does at the end of philosophy is he explains a little bit about the type of philosophy he's talking about, that which is full of empty deceit. And how do we know that a philosophy or a way of thinking is full of empty deceit? It's according to human tradition, not according to Christ. So here's the second thing that it's not before we get to what it is. Two, philosophy per se isn't bad, but neither is tradition. Tradition is actually really good. How many of you have awesome family traditions that you practice on occasion? I do. Every Friday night when my family practices the Sabbath, we start at dinner, we uh, turn off our devices, we light a candle, and we eat breakfast for dinner every week. That means we eat pancakes, we eat waffles, we eat whatever, bacon, anything with sugar in it. We eat Pancake, we eat breakfast for dinner, and that's our tradition. Our kids love it. They look forward to it. We find them saying, I can't wait for the Sabbath day when we can eat pancakes with Jesus, you know? That is a great tradition. Maybe you have some family traditions in your own life. Some of them are good. Uh, here's another good one. I just want to read it for you and see if you recognize it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's that? That's a tradition. That's Paul saying, I'm giving to you what was also handed down to me. That's what a tradition is. What is this tradition? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel itself is a tradition handed down generation to generation from the apostles. So traditions by themselves aren't bad. I, I feel the need to say that in an age where there's so much deconstruction of tradition just because of tradition's sake. Uh, but really, that's not the issue. The issue is, is it a good tradition or is it a bad one? Is it a good philosophy or is it a bad philosophy? And what Paul seems to be saying is that the bad philosophies, the bad traditions are those that are counterfeits to the true way of Jesus Christ. Now, for Colossae, that looked a certain way. We, we looked at this in depth a few weeks ago in chapter 1. Uh, the counterfeits that the Colossian church was facing was this kind of syncretism where they were following after Jesus Christ, but they were also just kind of adding that to the buffet of all these other different types of world religions that were also cool. So you had Judaism, you had mysticism, you had all of this stuff, and they would simply add Jesus to that. So he wasn't, he didn't have primary allegiance in everyone's heart and life. He wasn't the, he, he wasn't preeminent. He was just kind of an add-on to a pre-existing spiritual buffet, right? And so Paul is saying, hey, when you follow Jesus, he's, he's at the top of that hierarchy. Everything else falls under, underneath him. And so in Colossae, there were all of these paths of least resistance, shortcuts uh, that seemed to be more attractive to them than the way of Jesus. We'll talk about these next week uh, when he goes into some of those details. 
But for us, we can kind of transfer that little principle right there. What is a counterfeit for us? It's any kind of path of, it's any path of least resistance that seems to us in the moment to be more attractive than the way of Jesus. It's what thing, when things get easier, when we have to compromise a little bit, when the way of Jesus, uh, which maybe on Sunday was awesome and full of joy and thriving and easy, all of a sudden becomes harder on Monday and we find ourselves gravitating towards easy ways out. We kind of cut spiritual corners. We forget some of the things that Jesus says because the way of Jesus can sometimes be a challenge because there's easier ways to follow than Jesus and those counterfeits often make the same promises. Think of a very rudimentary example of a counterfeit or an idol, an addiction. What is an addiction but just an easy way out in the moment? An easy way out that says uh, uh, if you're having a hard day, your life is crumbling around you, things are full of anxiety and fear and insecurity, you can, in that moment, pursue, kind of step into that grief and pain and allow Christ to enter into that in a painful work of transformation uh, in, uh, in healing you. But that's not comfortable. But you could do that. That's the way of Jesus. Or... You could just drink or take substances or work longer extra hours at work instead of uh, coming home to be with your family or scroll endlessly down Instagram, filling your minds with unnecessary things. There's a, a variety of ways in which we can take something because it's easier in the moment than the way of Jesus, which is challenging in the moment. Think of the workplace. Every time uh, you come up against a uh, a moment in your workplace or in the marketplace where you can cut corners and kind of uh, skip out on the way of Jesus because it's going to make you a bigger profit. It's going to give you more stature, more power, more privilege. You can either continue in the way of Jesus to your own short-term expense or you can cut corners and go towards that, uh, go towards that counterfeit. Think of the political climate and the ways in which loving, good Christians can turn into monsters during certain years. Where all the stuff we have read from the Sermon on the Mount goes out the door because, Jesus, you don't know about the politics stuff. Get out of here with your loving your enemies and all of that stuff. I'm entering into a field that you do not know about, and this requires power, and this requires coercion, and this requires a strong tongue. Think of all the counterfeits in your life in which you are tempted, instead of following the way of Jesus, to take an easier route. And the reason that's so easy to do is because counterfeits, which are really idols, promise us a lot in the moment. They promise us everything that Jesus promises. An easy, a, a comfort, peace, salvation. They promise us a level of transcendence and joy and fulfillment but they never deliver quite as well. They might at the beginning. You might find a counterfeit that gives you a dopamine rush and you feel great in that moment, but as you continue down that path, you find that it delivers less and less and throws upon your shoulders more and more demands. Eventually, all counterfeits to the way of Jesus will end up destroying you 
We just often don't feel it in those initial moments. It's like the proverbial frog in a, a boiling pot of water. Uh, as they say, if you were to put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it would jump out. But if you put it in a cold pot of water and turn the water on, it would be boiled without even recognizing it. And this is the, uh, I don't know if that's true, but this is the, the parallel with the idols and counterfeits in our life. Of course, they seem like the easy way out right now. But the counterfeits to Jesus will always destroy you in the long run. The good news of the gospel is that everything that we need, the fullness of what your heart's capacity was made for, is found in one person and one person alone. Paul says this, for in Christ, the fullness. Somebody say fullness. In Christ, the fullness of God dwells bodily. Everything. Everything. So he's not just the smartest person in the room. He's also the most powerful person in the room. He's also the most fulfilling person in the room. He's also that which is filled with joy. Uh, he's filled with satisfaction. He's filled with all of those things that our broken souls are missing. And he's there in the room. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. And you, Christian, have been filled in him. He's the head of all rule and authority. In him you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, that's Paul's way of saying, uh, referring back to that Old Testament practice of circumcision, something on the outside is taking, uh, taken off. But then the, visual, the, 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 the idea of that is that the heart is truly what needs to be circumcised. That's what Deuteronomy says. Our hearts are hard to God. We don't uh, respond to God. We don't comprehend God. We outright reject God, and we accept all of the counterfeits instead of God. And what Paul is saying to the Colossian church is, remember when you were born again? What happened in that point? I'll tell you what happened. Your heart was circumcised. The body of flesh was taken off your heart. You were brought into Christ. You were buried with him in baptism and you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who didn't just raise Christ from the dead but also raised you from the dead. That's what Colossians is about, is raised with Christ. Paul is reminding them of that. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. He forgave us. He took everything that we did wrong, our mishaps, our mistakes, our areas of brokenness, our conflicts, the way that we failed to love God and to love others, the things that we have done falsely to others, the things that we have un left undone, God has taken all of those and he has nailed them to the cross of Christ. And we are set free for life it was, as it was truly meant to be. And he disarmed rulers and authorities. It's speaking about demonic principalities. And he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in, in, uh, in, in God. He's not just the smartest person in the room. He's also the most powerful, the most effective. Some of you, even though this letter was written to Christians, some of you might not be Christians. You might be asking, well, how do you become a Christian? Or maybe you're thinking, I, I think I'm a Christian. I don't know if I am. Somebody called me that once. But I don't know, I go to church, I went once a couple times. Whatever the case may be, maybe you're curious about that. And I want you to go back to that line where it says that you were dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive together with Christ. Salvation happens by the initiation of the Holy Spirit. 
This is good news because if you're sitting right now in these green, stinky high school seats, asking yourself, I, I want to know Jesus, but I don't know what that means. I got good news for you. If the desire is there, that means the Holy Spirit's already working on your corazón, okay? He's already after you. He's already moving upon you. You who are dead in your trespasses, he's starting to stir some life in the dark corners of your world. All you got to do is respond to that in faith. Say, yes, I want to give my life to Christ and love him more than all the counterfeits. That's how it begins. But it doesn't end there. Paul ends this passage by talking about how Christians are supposed to learn from Christ. And he gives us a couple points here. If we are to learn from Christ because of the counterfeits all around us, Paul would then go on to tell us that we are to walk in what we learn. Look at verse, uh, verse 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Don't just listen to the guy in the room. Walk with him out the room. And how do you do that? Paul gives us some, some explanation here. Rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. I want to talk about four of those words right now. To walk means to continue in what you know about Christ. And here's, what, here's how that's spelled out by Paul. He talks about being rooted. All that means, he's using, uh, he's using plants and that visual metaphor there to speak about a personal connection with the soil. And so he's applying that to your life. There must be a personal connection between you and Christ. This is not simply some far off thing where God is out there somewhere shouting commands into your life. Jesus is in the room. What do you do with someone that's in the room that you love? You talk to them. You listen to them. You eat with them. You spend time with them. So when Paul speaks about being rooted, he's speaking about intimacy with Christ. When he speaks about being built, he's speaking about engaging in your own spiritual development. In other words, this is not this passive endeavor, this Christianity thing. We're not to simply sit back and let it happen. Paul calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work in us to work and to will for his good pleasure. And so he calls us to be intimate with Christ, to know him, to relate to him, to hear from him, to spend time with him, but also to grow to practice the spiritual disciplines, to gather together as a church, to read the scriptures, to do things that will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enable our hearts to receive what God is already doing. That third thing, established, means it's not primarily us, pull, it's not us pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. We've been established. That means there is a complete reliance on God here. Paul is speaking about a dependence on God. So yes, we are engaging in our spirituality, but we're engaging in our spirituality as though God were holding us together by the word of his power. Because he is. He ends with a word of abounding in thanksgiving. And thanksgiving isn't perhaps the way that we think of thanksgiving, like sending a card after you get a Christmas present or shouting... Uh, Laxadaisically, you know, thanks. When Paul speaks about Thanksgiving, he's speaking more about worship, a heart that is overflowing, not with duty, but delight. So think of all of these things being rooted and built and established. And then Paul is saying, and I, I pray that you would be abounding in a place of delight, not religious duty and obligation, but you would 
love being rooted in Christ. You would love being built up in him. You would love being established. This would be your whole life, and you would see Christ as better than all of the counterfeits in this world. When he tells us to walk in Christ, he uses that plural form, which means he's not talking to individuals, but to a church. So read all of those things that I just read and plug them into your spiritual community. This is not a lone ranger sport. It is a team sport where we are rooted together, built together, established together, worshiping together. I also want you to notice as I wrap this up, uh, that right around that command in the center of our text, to walk in him, Paul seems to sandwich that one imperative, that one command, with these invitations to remember something. Uh, I want to read that for you real quick in Colossians. He says in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you already received the gospel of Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. As you received, just as you taught. In other words, it's almost as though Paul is trying to remind us to be reminded. Yes, right in the middle of that, he is telling us, walk in him, walk in him, stay with him, continue with him. But right around that, he see, it's almost as though he graciously knows that we will forget to do that. And so he graciously reminds us and invites us to come back. Remember, Remember who he is. Remember what he's done. And so Paul doesn't just leave us with walk in Christ. He also calls us to remember and to return. Because there will be those Mondays where you forget everything that you heard on Sunday morning. You'll be so entrenched in the things of God and yet Wednesday will come and you'll suffer grief and loss and all of that stuff is out the door. And it's almost like Paul knows that. He understands that. He empathizes with that. And he lovingly calls you back to those first things. And here's why that's important. And I'm gonna actually ask Aaron and the rest of the team to come out here as we sing and give thanksgiving. But I wanna end by way of a story, and that is a, an ancient church by the name of Ephesus. Ephesus was awesome. Ephesus was one of those first original churches that exploded in revival across Asia Minor. And Paul was in the habit of writing a lot of letters to a lot of churches, and almost all of his letters were addressing problems because those churches had a lot of problems. The Corinthians had a problem with sexual immorality and divisiveness. The church in Galatia uh, uh, were following a false gospel, and then even in that, Peter, the great apostle, was succumbing to uh, racism. Uh, Colossians, they're following after mystic things and counterfeits. But then there's this one, there's this one book of, uh, that Paul writes to, excuse me, this one church that seems to have no problems. That's not true, but it's doing so well that all he can do is praise God. And the first thing he says to the church in Ephesus is, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. First thing that he says in his letter, I've heard of your faith and your love. Wow. Now I'm saying all of this because we as a church too can be experiencing a mighty and powerful move of God in our midst. Maybe you're growing, maybe you're experiencing him like never before. Maybe he's sustained you. Maybe there's more connection happening in our church than before. Maybe you're being plugged in. Maybe all of those things are happening. And yet the, the, the counterfeit that is always facing us is this. Things can get so good on the outside that we forgot what brought us there to begin with. 
40 years later, John the Apostle would pen a book called Revelation. And in chapter 2, he would write to that same church only one generation later. And this is what he would say. And this is actually Jesus talking. He says, to the church in Ephesus, I write, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Good job. I know you are enduring patiently, good job. And bearing up for my name's sake, good job. And you have not grown weary, good job. In other words, they're still bumping. They're still effective. They're still a successful church. But listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So remember, from where you have fallen, repent or return and do the things that you used to do at the beginning. Do the things that you used to do when it was just you and me in the room together. And I caught your eyes. I caught your attention. I opened up your heart just enough for you to be entranced and allured by me. And we all of a sudden were in a relationship together. And you found me to be the most glorious and beautiful and captivating thing you've ever saw. And every counterfeit and idol and addiction in your life began to pale in comparison to the beauty that I was to you. Remember that? Sure, you're doing stuff, you're more successful, you've got some more money, you belong to this great church, you're with some awesome friends, but perhaps you today would hear this and see and resonate with the words of Jesus to Ephesus. You too have left your first love. And God, who calls us to repentance by his kindness, not by a big stick, says likewise to you. So here's where I want to leave you. I want to leave you with two questions so that you can begin the journey of remembering and returning. Even if you have a vibrant life with Christ, the life of the Christian is one of remembering and returning over and over and over. That is our rhythm. So I want you for the next few seconds, just in the quietness of your own heart, to ask yourself this question. When were you most alive to Christ recently? Could be an event. Could be a relationship. Could be a practice whatever it was, I want you to remember when were you most alive to Jesus recently? Now as you are in the middle of pondering that first love, the things that you used to do at first, I want you to transition that question and ask this as we sing. How is Christ calling you back to him right now? Where were you most alive to Christ recently and how is Christ calling you back to him right now? As we ponder that question, allow our questions over the course of this next set of worship to turn into declarations as God speaks his truth over our philosophies, over our traditions, over our insecurities, over our brokenness, and let his word remain supreme.